So we cry cause we're made of water And it salts us out dead to the sweat of our fathers And our mothers bled us into this light screaming Where blood tastes of metal and tears make us rust Hello loyal listeners I am back from a long journey, but it's been well worth the wait. Much like Diogenes, the illustrious philosopher cynic, I have been walking around with a lantern looking for an honest man, and I can happily report to you all that I have found one. I have found an honorable, noble, honest man, and I am happy to present to you an interview that I conducted with him. The good news is... I retrieved it after serious technical, let's say, obstacles. Fortunately, he recorded the same interview. The tail end was lost, but that just gives me an opportunity to meet and talk with him again so we can share more of his wisdom because there's so much of it that he has that you would benefit considerably in hearing. And I'd love to present to you Mr. Alan Watt. Listen up, all you useless eaters. Now, since we are in the land of Oz, whether we care to accept that or not, it's about time to expose the little man behind the mirrors and the big voices. I'm pleased to welcome Alan Watt. Thank you for offering your time and wisdom to us, Alan. That's a pleasure to be here. Now, to make the best use of both, we've agreed to do this interview via a machine gun approach, meaning that I'll fire topics at Alan and you burst a light beam on all of these things because most of us, whether we realize it or not, are being duped and disinformed. First and foremost, for the sake of our listeners who may not be acquainted with what you're doing, Alan, could you give them a bit of a background on how you as a youth were making your journey through life and discovered what was going on, what opened your eyes, and what led you to commit yourself to this path? It was really, when I was very small, I... I lived in a mining community in Scotland, and uh, when you're small, you're ignored by adults, which is pretty handy if you want to watch people <laughs> and listen to them. And I went from you know friends' home to friends' home, and I found the same arguments in every home with the parents over the basic necessities of life at that time. Uh, they didn't have credit cards or anything like that. Um, they didn't have a welfare system when it was unemployment really on the go. And um, it was always about food uh, and rent. Food and rent, food and rent. And I thought, well, this is Great Britain, supposedly, uh, with all these centuries of empire and looting other countries. And I said, where did all the money go? And, of course, it all went to a couple of hundred families in London. And I went in early into libraries, adult libraries, to find out some of the histories. Uh, to find out that when I was even at five years old, I found out that uh, they were changing the history I was being taught at school, because I would check it up with very old books in the reference libraries. And we had really good old books, uh, some of them going back to the 1700s that were still in the, the reference libraries. And undoubtedly covered with dust because no one yeah. actually went in to have a look at them. That's right. And they even had um, collections of uh, newspapers, of the local newspapers, written at the time. And uh, I, I thought, my goodness, uh, it's a completely different history now in school. And when I brought all these things up in school, uh, the teachers were astonished because they didn't know themselves. But I could present them with the facts and, 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 uh, and authors and, and even uh, reporters of their time. And um, that's when I could really get on to it, that everything was just like George Orwell, I later found out. Uh, history goes down the memory hole with every publication and republication of every major book. Uh, so that set me off on the, the whole path of wondering why. And I can remember, too, there was a miners' strike. It was one of the first miners' strikes. And, there, again, there was no strike pay, there was no welfare. Um, and I think it was Harold Macmillan at the time, the Prime Minister, from an aristocratic family, all lords and so on. 
um, was in the front page of the newspaper say, telling the public that they'd never had it so good. And meanwhile, I and many other people um, were getting brought up in reopened, uh, condemned buildings that had been condemned a hundred years ago in one room, four of us. And that was pretty standard in these communities. And here's this character telling us we'd never had it so good, you know. I wonder who was he was referring to by, by we. It must have been the royal we. Uh, oh, yeah. They, they always had it good, for sure. But this was, the, this was the, the arrogance, you see, that had carried over from a previous century, was still alive and well in Britain, very well camouflaged in Canada and the U.S., um, they've worked on it harder to try and pretend it's a classless society, uh, which is a real joke. Whereas in Britain, you even have an accent which will place you in your category of class. You know, so um, yeah, it was a very snobbish country. The people were totally controlled. As I grew up, I noticed just flicking through different newspapers in different counties and areas, you'd have the same starting pay for the same jobs and then the same maximum pay. And I realized you, you had a, literally had a fixed rate of prices and wage system uh, across the whole country and in England too. And that took organization to make that come into play. So what in effect you were growing up in was very similar to a caste system as they have in India. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no and doubt about it. Untouchables, uh, yep. mm -hmm. which would be the vast majority of, of the blue collar. Mm-hmm. That's right. And the fiefdom. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and then I, what I really... Yeah, and what I found out, because Freemasonry, for instance, runs Britain, um, even my local area, uh, pretty well every major character was a Freemason. You know, you, I, the, the big lodge was um, in my town, and it was, oh, 300 years old. And now, were you approached at any point because being the bright child that you were, regardless of what your uh, humble beginnings might have been, undoubtedly your precociousness uh, would be make you a likely candidate to be lured into that particular yeah. organization? Did anyone at any point approach you to, to join? Oh, yeah. I, I had uh, people come up from Oxford and Cambridge and all the big universities and throwing scholarships at me. And these are the recruiters. These recruiters. Working through there. Yeah. And um, when you turn them down the first time, they, they don't give up. They keep coming back. And you have interviews with them. They promise you everything. And, and one of them even said, do you really want to live like the rest of the people here? And uh, don't you want to uh, come down to a place where your future is guaranteed and uh, you have a good income and you won't have the worries of the ordinary people? Uh, so, yeah, I had all the speeches given to me. Yeah. Now, why would you resist when so many have succumbed to all of these temptations? Uh, partly intuitive, really. I knew there was a lot more to it. I also still knew I was too young to, to, to understand it all. But I had read uh, the biography of one guy who went to Oxford, and he said that he was taken over when he entered the hallowed halls and looked at all the, the granite and, and then all the busts of famous people and authors and anyone who was anyone in British history was, was in there somewhere. Uh, and it, this author said that it took him over. It literally took him over becoming part of that. And it's very much like the Mafia. Once you're initiated and, and once you've been taken in, it's not like you can say, well, I've had enough of this game and I'm, I want out. Yes, right. That's right. Yeah. There is a great deal of ritualistic. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they have they have they have the Oxford Circle. Uh, that's their initiation into the, the a little bit higher order of Freemasonry, and uh, pretty well everybody in MI5 and MI6 from Cambridge and Oxford. You've either been in the Oxford Circle or, or the Cambridge Apostles, they call it. I think they call it. And now that's, however, permeated on a global scale, has it not? Yeah, wherever Britain went, the and this is still the agenda because the United Nations is based on the British Empire. Uh, that 
the British Empire and system was is the model for the rest of the United Nations and democracy, as they call it. To this day. Yes. And so wherever they went into another country, and they dominated for at least 40 to 50 years, and they would ensure they recruited a, and created a type of middle-class system uh, with a British uh, culture instilled in them, uh, and the same Freemasonry, and the same uh, democratic system. That's why they waited so long to pull out of India. They tried to set the same thing up there before they pulled out. That's still, by the way, a UN mandate when they go into a country. Uh, they still have that written in their charter. They won't pull out until they've put a little mini-democracy there that is really based on the British system. Could you perhaps give us a bit of a historical overview on this on this the origins of this uh, group and some key names uh, when mm-hmm. it when it first began, so that people can uh, do their own uh, referencing and, and searching. Yes, the, the the earliest that I could find that's available to the public. And I remember, and this is an interesting thing to find too. Um, you have for the public, you have public libraries, and for an elite, you have archives, uh-huh. and, and it's a big difference, because I've had professors tell me that maybe one in 50 professors is given access to an archive. You know, I encountered that personally myself here when I was doing, I actually, uh, on my own journey, and I'm not going to take away from, from your discussion here, but just to... I'm validating exactly that. I was actually doing a small paper and trying to get some research on Freemasonry for something entirely other in my undergraduate studies, and there was definitely a list of books which were within the database system, but I simply couldn't get into the room where they were kept. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, And that's why certain authors um, are allowed access to the archives. They're vetted. They are approved. Uh, they're sworn, they're bonded, and their job generally is to give something a little bit more to the public once in a while, and that's why specific authors come out going over the same material, supposedly, and yet giving you a paragraph or a page of information that's never been released to the public before, which makes you ask the obvious question, if the all all the previous authors on that particular subject had access to the same information, why didn't they mention it before, this new material or this new information? And you realize, no, everything is authorized uh, for its time and place. Indeed, there's always more questions than answers. Yeah. What is the distinction between Freemasonry and Illuminati? Illuminati... bandied about all the time. Well, this this was a bit of a, a clever deception. Um, we go way back again back to the, the names who first come into history openly as um, what we would call today Freemasons and that was, that was a Rosicrucian society the real ones not the ones you send off uh, your money and they send you a couple of pamphlets back you know <laughs> but uh, there's one in California like that the real ones in Philadelphia well there's one in North Ontario yeah uh, uh, a, a few Dutch people seem to yeah, and there's a big one in Switzerland. Yeah, and um, John D was the first one to openly come out. Uh, it's a mixture of what they called Christian Kabbalah. Uh, they brought the Kabbalah of uh, the Aramaic countries in Hebrew as well um, and put it in with this new form of Christianity. Um, and John D wrote uh, books on it. He, John Dee, was the man who coined the term the British Empire, the first man to say so. He approached Queen Elizabeth I with a suggestion of how to go about creating a, he called it a British, B-R-Y, British Empire. Uh, and and what, it would be based on a form of free trade for those that would join. And those who wouldn't join would be um, basically blacklisted and they'd get no trade. However, along with the free trade was to become the, the, the gradual merging of the, the, the member countries with their legal systems so they'll be all once again based on the British type structure and, and system. And that was so the that 1500s. Was the that was the prototype that everyone mm-hmm. used as, as a means of establishing the same thing 
in other cities and other continents. Yeah, and, and, and in his day too, John Dee uh, was also a spy for Queen Elizabeth I, and that's admitted, you know, and there's a lot of declassified stuff down the centuries. And um, his number was 007. Oh. That's where they got the name from, yeah, 007. And uh, he had the largest library in, in Britain, the whole of Britain in his day. Um, he also did a lot of encryption. That's part of their whole technique is to encode things in words and in, in writing. So he put a big book out on calling down the spirits. However, the whole thing really is Masonic coding. So there's an exoteric for the people who read it, and, and they then go to graveyards trying to call up the spirits. And uh, but in reality, it was nothing more than than uh, giving out to members the codes. That's what it is. Yeah. Oh, I see. And there's a lot of numerology and symbology involved. Yes, and even the letters of the English alphabet are there. But along with him, in Queen Elizabeth the first, that was the, the first real openly Masonic court. Um, there was Francis Drake. And uh, you had uh, other ones, and there were pirates too. They call them freebooters. They were authorized to go out from England and raid uh, all the other shipping because they were to acquire as much wealth as they could to build up uh, massive navies for the future to create this British Empire. That's oh, what it was all about. The church followed suit with the Crusades. Oh yes, I know. It's an old, old ongoing thing. Uh, there's nothing really new in it. Um, However, they knew as well that the Catholic Church had ruled the world for a long time uh, with no opposition, really. And they also know by their own laws of studying uh, humanity and populations for many, many centuries that, that you need opposition if you want to create a directed change. And, and so it's around the same time you end up with Luther coming out, another Catholic priest, whose coat of arms is also the Rosen Cross, by the way. And, um, uh, and we the unclean are stuck between church and state. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So it's quite interesting. And um, and then, of course, you had uh, Francis Bacon, who came out, uh, again, an advisor to royalty. He came out with uh, the New Atlantis, which was the under a story form, a fictional form. He was also giving the format for a country which would rise in the West. He's talking about America. Ah, so there's a lot of metaphor here. There's a lot of metaphor. And in fact, it's in the Talmud, in fact, that the country that would, that would free the world would be, uh, it would be a star of the West, not of the East. And, and uh, it was called America. So, um, so anyway, yeah, he, he, the New Atlantis was to be a country that would give a new value system to the world it would technically um, be on its own and independent. There would be a, a Republican form of government on the surface. And this We're is referring to the U.S. here. That's right. And however, he did say that, um, and this has been the same in all ages too. If you want to hide something, you bury it, or you know, you, you something out of sight. And he talked about um, an elite would really rule the country over the Republic uh, system. The real government would be living inside mountains or under the ground in special man-made rooms and, and, and even said laboratories. And his book was written in the late 1500s and published in 1602. And here he is writing about uh, laboratories underground. He also called it uh, Solomon's Land, which is a, the early word for Solomon, but he used S-A-L. And... Uh, Solomon's land. Solomon, of course, is the whole Masonic thing again. There was a Christian Masonic thing. But he, in the fictional story that he wrote, and remember its time period, uh, he said that at the end, the hero, the, the visitor to the island, was allowed and to, to be escorted into the underground laboratories where they could create any kind of vegetables. Uh, by uh, specifically combining them, but not by crafting them. 
So this is, in fact, a precursor, a blueprint to where we are right here and now. Yeah, and then he went on and said in the next room, they created all kinds of animals, knowing what the end product would be, but they could design them uh, from taking the minutest particles from one and combining them with the other. Genetic manipulation. And, and here's the other one. <laughs> there was even a huge machine, he said, which could control winds and hurricanes and uh, create rain or drought. And Carp machines. Yeah. <laughs> so this is this is a. All there in black and white. Yeah, and this wasn't. Um, this was a, a bona fide, genuine publication that's still found in universities in the old form. I have the old books here too. So, how can you even beam that up in, in an age where they were still using the sailboat and horses and carts and, and reading by candlelight? And yet here he is writing this, this country that was going to lead the world into a new system. Can you tell us a bit about how the hierarchical strategies work in terms of this elitist core? Is it a, it is a, is it a bloodline thing? Because now you've got all of this Da Vinci Code uh, ah, yeah. razzmatazz going on and, and the whole notion of these the Holy Grail bloodlines and yeah, what have you. And, yeah. and it's, it's a question of uh, a specific lineages and then then you have uh, a second echelon of people who are recruited by virtue of what i consider to be faulty genetics because they have no conscience and and no yeah. capacity to to have compassion for their fellow man i think those are prerequisites if i'm not they, they are they are in, in fact and again there's nothing staggering the more you learn about it that you're not staggered by it there's a lot of disinformation out there oh, too it all makes total sense if, yeah. if one's just observing carefully yeah i mean even with the uh, da vinci code 2 that's the old stuff that the masons always rehash and rehash to fascinate the public but it's even deeper than that because you can go back to plato who was a member of the greek aristocracy and Plato uh, wrote the, the, the book called The Republic. And in The Republic, and he was, um, he, he studied most of his life, like all the, the top Greeks did in Egypt. So he learned it from the Egyptians who'd already run the, the ancient world for a, a few thousand years at that time. And in The Republic, he describes a future world um, where a guardian elite would rule it. Uh, these guardian elites would interbreed with themselves uh, because they were the, the brightest of all and they had the right to rule uh, because they had acquired all the wealth of that age. That was a prerequisite. And beneath them, there would be a helping class, a helper class, where they could recruit from a lower class of the brighter ones and once again look for certain qualities that they would call them psychopaths who would serve them well and they'd form a military class out of that uh, and eventually he said when the republic becomes to its fruition in the future he said then we shall bring the women in and then we shall have a class of military which will interbreed and, and, and reproduce the same type the aggressive type so you've got programmed drones and the women are basically spawning more of them that's right and, and he also talked about uh, altering people for specific jobs by by picking. He said, if we want a person to pick apples, this is his little joke, um, he said, we can pick a, a man and a woman who are tall and keep breeding them, inbreeding them, just like um, domestic dogs, and, and get the qualities we want. Or we want a, a minor, you can get a, uh, keep breeding small squat people until you have little stocky sturdy guys that can go down mines and so he was talking about making purpose made humans for specific functions but also he talked he said just like you can breed qualities and he's talking about mental qualities you could also breed certain qualities out you wouldn't want them to be aggressive you'd want them to be like the domestic cow for instance uh, but, but uh, be very efficient as well so you can just pump them up with estrogen and mm -hmm. uh, diminish the amount of testosterone levels yeah. and turn them into passive. Yeah, and he was also referring to people because you can also breed the people the same way. And that's just it. You can see if you want a king or a queen. And I found this interesting even about the Rose Strode's uh, scholarships. 
um, wrote scholarships to, to get one, um, you have to, apart from having to know the right people, um, and that's a good chunk of it. Now, the Rhodes Scholarship, again, was a part of its ongoing British Empire for world conquest for a system set up by Cecil Rhodes and Lord Rothschild and, um, and Lord Milner, eventually. Lord Milner, Milner ch- chucked his lot in with the two. And they, they um, gave up, they created a scholarship to, to bring in bright students from all different countries and train them for, for um, pushing towards world unification and the same standardization system of, based on Britain. And they're in all bureaucratic departments and federal governments worldwide in every country now, those guys. And, uh, but to get a Rhodes Scholarship, you had to have been involved in the, the acceptable social policies of the day at acceptable demonstrations, etc. We always think we're demonstrating against something. We, we never think some things we're demonstrating for something else because we're, we're ordinary people. We're, we're decent people. We don't think like a psychopath. And uh, their idea was to create NGOs which would have financial backing by, by the big foundations which would demand... Yeah, can you explain what an NGO is? For yeah, the, the, the non-governmental organizations uh, where the public, public would think they were grassroots and just people collecting money around doors and protesting from their homes and, and writing all this stuff on the kitchen table. Uh, but in reality, the biggest non-governmental organizations have, you know, uh, office to buildings and, and staff and pension funds and all the rest of it. And they're paid by big foundations like the Rockefellers because all the big foundations, Ford, Carnegie, Rockefeller, are part of this world uh, corporation. They're all high Masonic institutions. And they fund the, the NGO groups that they wish to fund. They then go to governments and say, we, you know, we demand this because this is wrong or right. And then uh, the, the, the government are only too happy to say, that's just what we wanted you to ask. And, and, and they pass a law, you see. And indeed, what about the people that are, are part and parcel of this lobbying group? The same thing. Uh, yeah, same thing. Okay. An NGO is just a, a, another form of lobby group authorized uh, to be out there for specific changes to be brought in, into society um, by governmental action and law. Yeah. Has there ever been a, a time in history, to your knowledge, where these uh, groups, although they seem to be very well united against the plebeians mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, achieving complete control, are they competitive amongst themselves? They're allowed a certain amount of competitiveness and uh, just finishing the Rhodes part, the one prerequisite to be a Rhodes Scholar is that you must have leadership abilities and you must also have the ability to be very aggressive, very, very aggressive when required, almost dispassionate in that immigration. And you read cue cards that someone else has written for you. Yes. When it comes to public speaking. Yeah. So there should be a certain element of charisma there, too, because if you're the front man, you've got to persuade thousands of people that what you're saying rings true. Yeah, and, and there's no better uh, personality than the psychopath, because a psychopath doesn't feel empathy for others. However, as they grow up, they study and watch how others interact with each other, and they become the best actors you could possibly imagine. So they're brilliant mimickers. Fantastic even though there's no authentic or genuine ounce of yeah. feeling in them. They, they are, in fact, uh, Henderson and Gillespie's psychiatry studies and the books they printed back uh, even in the 70s had all the latest, at that time, the latest information because psychiatry used to, because it was a fairly new science, used to look at or, or find the, the common psychopath at the street level who ended up in trouble with the law by breaking windows and grabbing things because a psychopath generally has no um, ability to... Um, he wants instant gratification. Like yeah, he wants instant gratification. And um, that, that's what they thought a psychopath was. And then they were catching on to, wait a minute, though, we have the same personality types up in politics. And that's when the governments came down and started to try and get this all hushed up. Um, 
because that's where they gravitate towards. The brighter ones who are born in, in families of influence gravitate towards power. They, they want power because they love to dominate. And um, they are egocentric. They're pure ego, a psychopath. Now, the agenda is pretty clear. It's a question of control of the global economy and the people in it. Mm-hmm. So um, l- let's get down to how that has been planned to be effectively achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, well, getting back, there's an interesting thing you brought up was Illuminati. What's the difference between yes, them and Masonry? Those words are bandied about, and some people don't really know the mm-hmm. distinction between the two. Yeah. Well, you see, it's, it's almost uh, becoming cliché. It is a cliché, and it's meant to be a red herring. Um, they, keep, they brought Adam Weishaupt up, and they keep going on about Weishaupt as though he was the first guy to come up with this agenda. And he wasn't. He was only one member of one branch of Freemasonry who got caught at it, basically. Oh, so he got a little too big for his britches and started bragging, did he? He'd, well, psychopaths love to brag. And here's, the, here's a little clue to that. Uh, even, even the serial murder, murderer um, who eventually gets caught and has been so careful, when he gets caught, he has no problem in disclosing to the public every single thing he did and all the details because he thinks he was so clever, he's proud of it, you see. Mm-hmm. It's the same uh, with these characters. Some of the psychopaths... Is, is the, the downfall here. That's it. So Weishaupt was just a member of the, the, the Bavarian Lodge that, whose symbol was a standard, a, a very common Masonic symbol, uh, the Bienen Orden, they called it, the Order of the Beehive or the Bees, because that's a symbol of a perfect society with the queen, the, the priestess drones, and, and all the workers down below. Oh, irony of ironies, and look what's happening with our bees now. I know. So, yeah, you, you, you are looking at a system. The problem we've had is since the, the creation of the larger bureaucracies as the governments grew, you have the constant inbreeding of psychopathic types now amongst themselves, just like the elite. Uh, that's because, as I say, um, Plato said you can breed a quality or trait in, or you can breed a certain quality or trait out. That's your emotional part, uh, empathy, and so on. So you have ruthless people, um, basically, uh, in, in politics, um, all working towards this agenda um, and, and serving their masters because psychopaths do worship those who have more power than themselves. We see that in military situations, for instance, where they worship uh, the, the guy at the top that gets all the glory because they wish they were that person. So you're looking at a tremendous system that's been put in place. It's going to go for a long time. Uh, and they knew back in the 1930s, I know this, what the future uh, of the world was going to be because I have some of the old books from the, the Royal Institute of International Affairs that really is an arm of uh, it came out of the Rhodes Foundation and the Lord Milner Foundation Now is this something that's accessible to anyone or, or is it just that they assume that no one's going to be interested or, or mm-hmm. will take the time to, to go to that level of depth of Yeah, the, 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 yeah it's a latter they, they pretty well know. Legally, it's amazing how legal they are, legalistic. They'll put things out for the public to consume, um, or at least legally see, knowing that they probably won't read it because there's no, there's no sex, violence, or, or a happy ending in it. It's dry, they're dry, boring books. However, when you get a hold of the old Royal Institute of International Affairs books, um, which is a, char- a royal chartered um, corporation, really, uh, that uh, plans the future. All reporters in the empire are, are and it's still the empire, it's still the Commonwealth, um, belong to it. The ones that don't want to belong to it, they wait till they're asked, so they do all they're told until they're asked to get it to, to join. You can't um, um, submit yourself to join, they come to you. Mm. And the American branch they set up in the early 1900s was the Council on Foreign Relations. They couldn't call it the, the Royal American you know, Institute of International Fund. So they, oh, no, that would blow their cover with <laughs> it. would blow their cover. A revolutionary yeah. new world. Yeah. 
So they called it the Council on Foreign Relations, and it's, it's just the, the, the American branch of the same thing. And you see all the top politicians in the U.S. are members of it, and uh, in Canada, uh, pretty well everybody in Parliament's a member of it. Yeah. And once again, these are drones that are that are carefully cultivated on the basis of very specific uh, instructions and plans. Yeah, no one, in fact, in the public eye, it gets to be in, in a position of influence unless they've been vetted and trained and authorized and cleared many times over down the road and t before the public even hear their names. So these meetings like the Bilderberg, uh, these are to where they get their walking papers and, and where they are given their instructions as far as what they're expected to do within a certain time frame? That's right. Yeah, and they did uh, at the Bilderberger meeting. Again, even the name, when they chose the hotel in Holland, they probably even built the hotel for, for the meeting because you're, you're building the mountain, the berg, you see. Yes. It's the builders. They call themselves builders. And so they love these little names and stuff to, to congratulate themselves on their, on their cleverness. Uh, but, yeah, they, they lay these plans down. Uh, the Club of Rome did the same thing. Now, I'm just curious, uh, because I'm living in Canada, what, what is your angle on all of this uh, hubbub regarding Conrad Black? Oh, yeah, He's yeah. supposed to be one of their... Uh, um, yeah, one of the good boys. ...raced yeah. And, yeah. And, and taken into the fold, and now all of a sudden his name is Mud. Is this another red herring? It's another... Uh, what we get to the public level is drama. We get uh, drama. Uh, this is uh, well, this, this is the uh, same thing as the Britney Spears yeah, action. Yeah. Oh my goodness. We, we get drama. We, I, I kid you not. I watched all this stuff for years and said we, because they always give us topics like Zygmunt Brzezinski said, and he's advised God knows how many presidents. And uh, Brzezinski said in one of his books, he says, uh, he said um, shortly the public. This is the 1970s in the book called Between Two Ages. He said. Um, he said, shortly the public will be unable to come up with ideas or topics to discuss on their own. They'll only be able to repeat that which was downloaded into them by the previous night's news. And then he went on to talk about the technotronic era of uh, methods of technology that will be used on whole populations and they'd be completely unaware of it. Oh, well, have you heard of Second Life, Alan? They've, they've started these virtual realities where yes. you, can, you can live in a computer. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that started with the movie The Lawnmower Man as predictive programming to make children want that idea, make it exciting. They always uh, program us through fiction before the reality comes into, down our way. Uh, so, yeah, these are all scientific techniques that are well understood. But, but these books... Um, repeatedly. Repeat, yeah, repetition. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it's always exciting. They don't tell you the real story that once you get your little chip in your head, you'll, you'll no longer be you. You will be gone. In fact, you... But it's all for your own good. Oh, yeah, it's for the world peace. And it will be right. peace because it will be peace for the elite, you <laughs> because see. Because no one has a free will. That's and right. And no one has a brain left. That's correct. That's correct. So, yeah. That's, these, that's the, as Orwellian as one could possibly imagine a future. I know. It's terrifying, really, but that's what's on the cards. Now, uh, the British Ministry of Defense, which is a part of NATO, which is a scrambled Aton, you know. Aton is, yeah. uh, is old sun god of ancient Egypt. Indeed. Yeah, and, and even the symbol of NATO is a disguised swastika, if you look at it, with the two-tone colors there. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So yeah, nothing changes. For the, they put things in plain view, like Albert Pike said, the great Pope of Freemasonry. He says, we put things in plain view of the profane who never understand what they see or hear. And they do this all the time. It's the same with what is the, the mystery of the Mona Lisa. And as Ammon is all. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And people, once they're given bread and circuses, that's, that's all that's really required. Yeah. They're easily entertained. Oh, they love a mystery, and, and these guys have experts and teams of authors to churn this stuff out to you. It's part and parcel of the propaganda. Yeah. But yeah, drama is fantastic because um, for their British mindset, for Canada, say, because they adopted more of the British system, the CBC is based completely on, on, on the BBC. 
uh, the way it's presented. It's, oh, it's uh, not even not even camouflaged as such. It's mm, most definitely yeah. an imitation. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, even radio, even China has uh, has got the same BBC guys working for them, and they have the same format in China now. It's interesting. So, so yeah, the, the BBC um, started it off for the British public. Canada adopted it. So did Australia. And, and for us, because we're not so uh, into the oh wild sex or staring at people stuff in the streets, um, they give us a, a guy who appears to be fallen like Conrad Black, but he's, he's not fallen at all, you know. And it doesn't matter what happens to him; he so won't he serve time. He stepped up to the plate to draw attention to himself mm -hmm. so that uh, that the real plan can be carried out. Or like Brian Mulroney uh, with the kickback scheme. Um, he'll come yeah, back. He's got a, nice, uh -huh. a nice little offshore account somewhere, and he sold Canada down. Yeah, or, or he'll he'll end up suing those who accused him and getting billions out of it, just like Mulroney. Well, yeah. Speaking of accusations, I want to clear up for everybody this whole notion of conspiracy theories, where that phrase was coined, mm -hmm. and why people like yourself are painted with that with that brush. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting term, again, put out by what they call counterintelligence. And people mimic what they hear or see. That's what um, Charles Galton Darwin talked about, who wrote The Next Million Years on behalf of the elite in the 1950s, mid-1950s. And he published this book called The Next Million Years, and he said that we create the culture the public will follow. They mimic what they see, they sing what they hear. Um, and they adopt the fashion and everything else. Everything that Plato talked about in ancient times creating the fashion industry, as Plato called it, the music industry and the drama industry, the public mimic. And so these, tech, these are old sciences that are still being used. So Charles Galton Darwin rehashed it. But he also went further and talked about the necessity of either sterilizing most of the males or um, uh, changing the, the physique of the women. Uh, through excess and different uh, hormones that they could either inject into you um, uh, directly or put in your water supply or spray it from the air, you know. Oh, it's yeah. happening as we speak, Alan. Yeah. I was outraged <laughs> to, to read a, an email from a, a friend of mine that was uh, pointing out that in Texas they were trying to uh, make mandatory a vaccination amongst girls between the That's ages right. of 9 and 11, which is supposedly uh -huh. to prevent the possibility of cervical cancer. Yeah, from the human papilloma virus. Yeah. And, and of course, even in themselves, it's supposed to only work against one particular type of human papilloma virus. Well, There's a whole range of don't them. don't work against viruses. Well, the thing is, I, I, I don't trust them, whatever they tell us now. When you go into Charles Galton Darwin stuff, and after Kostler stuff, after Kostler again was hired as a, as a propagandist through fiction at one time to basically push for, uh, or help the left along because they, they're on both sides, left and right. Mm. And Kessler, who had worked for Stalin as an officer at one time, he helped oversee the, the great famine of the Ukraine where they starved millions to death. He thought it was just wonderful and he admits that in one of his books. He said it was historical necessity at the time. That's how a psychopath rationalizes mass murder. Then Kessler went over to New York and he worked for the United Nations. And he came out with a book called The Ghost in the Machine, which is a term that's used often for what, what are you? You know, who are you? Are you just a bunch of uh, protoplasmic cells and synapses and neurons and so on? Or is there something else to you? The complete you, the sentient you individual you, that's what they meant. And, and his whole job at the United Nations was to find ways of uh, eliminating you, the, the, the ghost, um, to get, again for world peace. And he went through all the different factions working at the United Nations. One was trying to do it surgically, like lobotomies. One was trying to lobotomize specific parts of the brain by injecting chemicals and specific viruses, altered viruses, that would target what would be uptaken by the brain, by the receptors, and burn out certain parts that give you higher intellect and even aggressive parts, or the parts really which give you self-survival instincts. And he came out with all this, and in the last chapter he thought, he thought it was just a wonderful idea, and once again there'd be world peace. But just like I think uh, Bertrand Russell was also quite quite good at uh, yeah. 
submitting the same thing. strategies along those lines. Same thing. See, they all work together. That's just it. These guys all work for a central hub command. That's why they all uh, wrote about the same things, same techniques as well. Uh, and I, I should say this, counterintelligence works by, uh, uh, this is well documented by guys like Lawrence of Arabia, who was trained at Cambridge as, as a spy, basically. Uh, counterintelligence puts out sometimes thousands of people in a big city to gather nothing but gossip in bars and so on. Yeah, sit in a coffee shop and listen uh -huh. to particularly the youth who feel uh -huh. like they have free will and a choice. <laughs> yeah, and what they do is to find out if the topics they're putting through the news and the media and in the newspapers are being discussed, you see. They give and us their discussions. Yeah. And so when word comes out of certain things that are true and they're not good for the public, that's what's called intelligence. Something that may be harmful to those who control. And so they have counterintelligence agencies who then pick up the same stuff they fund people to go out into the limelight, they fund them to the hilt, they train them to become the leaders of what appears to be opposition to the elite. And then they spin it off into outer space or, or fantastic stories and literally lead all the followers through a maze of mind control, basically. So these are deliberate provocateurs yeah. who are, are planted in order to get uh, mm -hmm. an uprising and that way weed out people who might con be considered a threat? Yes, what you do uh, with counterintelligence, as I say, you, you, you put the fact in, you make sure that this appears to be, this guy seems to be on the ball, and then you bring the spin on it, which is often ludicrous, by the way. <laughs> it's the fantastic spin that gets them. And when you come out and, and just present the basic facts, They'll say, oh, you must be one of those reptilian guys, you know, and ha, ha, ha. In other words, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. They throw the intelligence out with the ridicule. Of this is exactly why I want to be sure that, uh, that our listeners are, are clear about this whole conspiracy theorist business and how you do not fall under that category in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, so I mean, that, I that's... Uh, clearly understood. Yeah, that, that theory really was put out... I mean, that, that was put out by the big boys themselves. Uh, to be adopted by those in certain movements, and they've adopted the, the term quite happily. It really does work. People adopt terms that they're given, and not realizing they're ridiculing themselves. Now, you did mention in, in the, the, uh, the last uh, phrase the whole reptilian agenda. Can, mm -hmm. can we just blow the lid off of that? Oh, yeah. You see... Um, Years that ago, would have been uh -huh. a very cost-effective thing in terms of this whole extraterrestrials taking over. That would have been uh -huh. very expensive a proposition, would it not, to create holograms of ships and that yeah. sort of thing. So is that why they abandoned that whole thing? But that's part of the reason. That their studies showed they could not convince enough people anyway. Uh, and it's true. You see, Aldo Huxley, who worked for Tavistock Institute, and who, again, put out a lot of stuff in fictional form, but but it was also part of an agenda which he, was, he, he worked towards. I mean, Huxley himself said that 60%, all studies had shown, and this is from a lecture at Berkeley, you can get that on my website too for download, and uh, he said 60% of the public are instantly um, suggestible, uh, hypnotics basically. 60%? 60%. He said another 20% with a little bit more work and persuasion can come to believe it just as much and which leaves 20 percent they could not affect and that these are old studies that are repeated over and over and over up to the present and it hasn't really changed in other words a lot of people will believe anything if authoritative figures tell them over and well, over this is it, the man in the white coat yes experts yeah and so see this again was meant to discredit a fact where psychologists had come out years ago studying the, the, the great dictators of history and coming to the same conclu conclusions um, uh, that psychopaths basically were the types who run the world system. And they said that uh, these are an unfortunate term. They, they, they said uh, there's a part of the brain where all your survival capabilities, reproductive, everything is in this little part of the brain. 
and they unfortunately gave a slang term called the reptilian part meaning that all animals and even reptiles have this little part in them for reproduction aggression uh, all of the baser things which are drives and also aggressive at times uh, well that was starting to get known and so that to bring out something which would make it ludicrous you see so that he, he, books came out about real reptilians and shapeshifters and all of this stuff and now when you mention that part oh yeah they turn into reptiles don't they yeah. so it's good counterintelligence how about overpopulation the whole notion that the world cannot sustain the people that, that exist on it now let alone yeah. in the future uh, again that all goes back um, this is not new again but it was well documented the technique was documented by by Malthus and in the 1700s he was an economist for the British Crown and for the British East India Company and he was the first one to fudge the, uh, this brand new phenomenon called statistics uh, they say there are lies, damn lies and then there are statistics it's hard to argue <laughs> you see it's hard to argue when they say statistics and um, uh, Malthus really fudged he made graphs that would predict that within a hundred years in uh, 1800s uh, they'd be walking all over each other on the planet all the commoners and and might overthrow the elite and so uh, he came down with all these t ways and means to eliminate uh, a vast quantity of those that were undesirable and even suggested building uh, public housing on swamplands so they'll, they'll get infected and their children will be um, prone to disease and all the rest of it because of oh, the... Oh, just wipe them out with a plague or two. Yes. And, uh, well, that's exactly, again, what Bertrand Russell talked about. He says, uh, uh, we're not blind. If we help the people, they'll live longer and and more of the wrong people will breed. Uh, so, yeah, this is, this, this is what we're up against here. Uh, these are real psychopaths. They really have an agenda. Well, let's take advantage of your being here now, and I'll, I'll say some catchphrases, and you just uh, burn the light on them. For example, and, and, and I'm going to go with things that are just rife in the media. We're just saturated with it, and that, to me, is a warning sign. The moment that the mass media is, is pumping it out there on every single channel, then that gets my alarm bells going. So let's say, for example, this whole global warming. Uh -huh, yeah, that yeah. all of a sudden all the scientists and all the people in the lab coats who know better than we do about everything are, are uh, up in arms about. And we've only got a specific time frame to deal with, otherwise we're all just yes. going to go to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. Well, years and years ago, the first man to mention world unification through terror and fear where we'd have to unite to fight a common enemy um, was John Dewey, who helped set up the U.S. educational system. And he gave lectures, and, and, and he mentioned that often in his speeches, the only way to unite the world would be to get a terror from out there. And out, from then on came the vast books on science fiction and aliens and alien attacks and all that stuff. Did well? Uh, yeah, and they tried uh, all kinds of gimmicks. They put millions out there. They paid millions to authors to write science fiction to get all this idea, this predictive programming into our minds as a possibility. And, and they did lots of CIA tests and different uh, organizational tests on big parts of the, of the populations. They even did... Um, Orson Welles, War of, uh, War of the Worlds, War of the World, they broadcasted over radio, they terrified people were even shooting at water, the big water uh, tanks up in the, on the legs, these tall legs they have that uh, feed little towns, uh, thinking they were alien craft, and there were people dying in car smashes trying to get away and all this stuff, and then it came out years later, it's declassified now, that it was the, the, the US government uh, that was behind it. And with departments of the psychological teams at Princeton University as a psychological warfare test. So that's declassified now. So they were trying this, and then of course they just couldn't get enough people to go along with it. So it's much easier to say we're going to get hit with a comet. Uh, we'll, we'll send guys off to, to blow comets up so we had deep impact, and different movies all came out at the same time. And then the amazing how insidious that is. You just throw it into the cinema, and uh -huh. it can uh, affect a, a staggering amount of people. Yes. Yeah. 
and, and then of course the next thing was um in the 60s, I thought, oh, I wonder we should have another plan B or C, because they never have one, just one plan. And Tell her. they came up with the um, hydrogen bomb. It was the first man, scientist, to say, you know, we could just spray the, the, the atmosphere on uh, vast spraying uh, exercises uh, with uh, aluminum oxide and different um, metallic particles if we want to either cool or warm the earth. And he also worked on projects to bring polymer. And you'll see the spray today. you can see polymer spray, which is sort of a, it, it spreads fast and it's very hazy. It's like looking through a, a plastic film uh, in the sky. That's the polymer. Polymer was invented uh, to carry certain viruses and bacterium to the earth in warfare purposes. But uh, they found... Yeah, Biological they, warfare. Yeah. And they found uh, that uh, they could do either uh, heating or cooling of the atmosphere on a grand scale, depending on the types of mixes they use, that I call the grand alchemists in the sky, that are there every day. And people will notice uh, that since the heavy spraying began, after the, all the countries, including Canada, signed the Open Skies Treaty, it's really warmed. It gets warmer. The more they spray, the warmer it becomes because these tiny particles um, are like reflectors. They reflect light all over the place and back and forth towards each other. So the rays don't strike the earth and bounce off or are absorbed. They literally go back and forth in the atmosphere, and it, it heats uh, all the atmosphere underneath it. I, in fact, experienced that this weekend walking the dogs. It was a beautiful sunny day, not a cloud in the sky, and the temperature was appropriate for an April morning. And then two hours later, of course, I saw, I saw the crisscross patterns and did my own cursing under my breath as far as who would be motivated to, to get mm -hmm. up there and do these things. Yep. And absolutely, I felt the difference in the temperature. It became quite unbearable and overheated yep. and within, within two hours. Mm -hmm. And it was two years ago, actually it was five years ago now, that they started to use harp alongside this. Teller suggested that they could bombard the atmosphere with uh, electromagnetic pulsations by putting so many meta or metallic particles in the atmosphere, the atmosphere would become like a, a circuit, more, more conductive, and it could carry vast distances that way. Now, I'm aware of the harp that's based out of Alaska. Is, yeah. is there any place else? There's 54 of them, they admitted to, a few years ago. And they can use them all in unison, too. Um, the first one... They uh, manipulate the weather. Yes. And, and not just the weather. If you go into the United Nations Treaty on Weather Warfare, uh, harp is in there. That was signed in the 1970s. And everything that was no, it could be known to do uh, is in that treaty, and so every country signed it not to use it. Like, now, this is an interesting part of the United Nations. Uh, it says they, can, they will not use it uh, when states war with each other, but it says nothing about not being able to use it on their own public. Ah, so of course. Yeah, and it's the same with the, the bullets. The police now use the hollow points. You, you're, it's not allowed to use hollow point bullets in warfare against another country, because they're so lethal and cause so much damage, but they allow you now to use it uh, in Canada, for instance. Well, and of police. course, they've developed uh, bombs that will keep buildings intact and only yeah. kill the people. And, and that's also disclosed that they're going to use them uh, from the Ministry of Defence of Britain that published a week ago in The Guardian. Uh, the whole agenda for the next 30 odd years, including the, the use of neutrino bombs to bring down specific ethnic populations. I mean, you can, this has been openly. Uh, yeah, I read the whole thing on the air just uh, a week ago. It's up on my site, in fact. Well, could you please tell everyone where they can uh, look up your website and your podcasts? I have been listening to for months on end and highly recommend everyone to go to immediately after they listen to this. Tell everyone where they might be able to get in touch with you. Yeah, if they look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com, uh, they can see all the stuff that's there for free download. Cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and that's all one word. That's all one word. And the other sites I have, and now i put them up in Europe and, and with transcripts in different languages, that's... Uh, Alan Watt Sentient Sentinel 
dot all EU. one word again. Yeah. Sentient Sentinel is all one word. Yeah, and dot EU. Uh-huh. And how long have you been doing this podcasting, Alan? I started, um, I, I, I felt I had no option but to start to come out. Uh, and I got into shortwave radio back in international shortwave in 98. And I've been on that on and off uh, up until about 2002 or three, if not 2004. And then I, I put my own sites up to get more information out. And Mr. Watt has indeed been doing that ever since. I'm one of his regular listeners. He has numerous books and CDs available for sale via the website, which I will post in the show notes. Our conversation is nowhere near over, and he has agreed to grace us with his presence for a subsequent interview, which I'm very joyful to be able to announce to everyone. Please uh, share some feedback and let us know what your opinions are and how much what you've heard has impacted your current state of reality. And I will get back to you very soon with more from Alan Watt. How could you love me? I ain't done nothing. My wounds are my prayers. I'm suckling fear. Your heart is gone dry And I can't get through Oh, lover, go on and cry me All the waters of this world And I'll owe you home 